Hi, colleagues. This is Richard McCallum. I'm the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Investigative Medicine, the journal for the American Federation for Medical Research. And I welcome our listeners from that, as well as other listeners on this podcast. Uh, each um, month, we try to choose a topic that represents something that might be relevant for this particular month. And this one, month of December, among other things that were highlighted, uh, it was HIV month. And so I chose an expert in that area that's also part of our American Federation of Medical Research. He's the incoming secretary treasurer for the Southern uh, section, uh, Stephanie Bauer, who's an associate professor of medicine, chief of infection control and epidemiology at the Charlie Norwood VA Medical Center in Augusta, Georgia. Stephanie hails from Greenville, South Carolina, attended college at the Medical University um, of South Carolina. Um, after uh, then uh, proceeding to the Medical College uh, of South Carolina in Charleston, where she went on to um, get her MD degree and then went on to residency in medicine and then fellowship in infectious diseases at the University of Alabama in Birmingham. From there, she went to the Charlie Norwood uh, VA uh, Medical Center uh, in, Green, in Augusta, Georgia, has been there for 12 years and is now an associate professor there. Uh, Stephanie is an epidemiologist. Uh, she's chief of infection control at that hospital. Uh, she also serves on multiple other local administrative committees, including uh, the Clinical Executive Board, Professional Standards Board. She's a funded principal investigator. Uh, her research interests include the epidemiology of specific infections in veterans and in dialysis patients. She's continued her interest in infections in the immunocompromised host by examining host pathogen interactions as HIV patients age. She's collaborating with Dr. Miller at Augusta University Cancer Immunology Inflammation Areas and also Dr. Sarg at the Centers for AIDS Research uh, Network of Integrating Clinical Systems um, as well in the HIV world. She has interest in um, pharmaceutical collaborations with Pfizer and um, she's very active um, in uh, contributing to the US RDS nephrology and infectious disease study groups and has co-authored numerous abstracts and has presentations with that group. So it's really uh, a pleasure to have an expert in HIV uh, to update us uh, on this entity and Stephanie will certainly re-impress us with the fact that it, it is here, but fortunately we're going to be, uh, we are benefiting from a great advancement in antiviral therapy and control of this entity with many challenges, of course, still on the table. So with that background, it's a pleasure to have Dr. Stephanie Bell uh, to take on the topic of HIV in 2020. Uh, Stephanie, welcome. That's right. Uh, thank you very much for the opportunity to be here. Um, HIV is still a problem in 2020. We had hoped to really take a chunk out of it uh, and things have gotten better. 
The treatments are much better than they used to be, but it still is a significant pandemic in the world. And so to give that a little bit of statistical background, um, since I am an epidemiologist, that's where I am. Um, so our most recent data is from 2018, and I'll reference the CDC data, just in the United States, there were nearly 38,000 new HIV infections diagnosed that year. Of those 51% were in the South. So the South is really leading the epidemic right now for the United States, unfortunately. Nearly 70% of those were in homosexual or bisexual men with about 24% in heterosexuals and 7% in injection drug users. Of all these cases, 42% were in African-Americans followed by Hispanics and then the white population. And the highest incidence in our age groups uh, is in the age group between 25 and 34 years of age. And so like Dr. McCallum said, folks that were may not even have been born uh, when HIV first entered the scene and was diagnosed in the United States. So currently in 2000, as of 2018, there were 1.2 million Americans living with HIV. And in that same year, there were over 15,000 deaths from HIV um, or in people diagnosed with HIV. And so we have seen a 7% decrease in cases since 2014 to 2018, but there's still so much more work to do. And so one of the biggest emphasis in HIV is to get people tested so that they know they are infected. It's estimated that only six out of seven adults who are living with HIV have ever been tested and know that they are positive. So that's one out of seven that never have been tested and don't know they may be a risk to their sexual partners or other people around them. And so it's estimated of those six people who do know their status, only about 50% are regularly seen in an HIV clinic and are suppressed on appropriate antiretroviral treatment. And so our national goals addressing HIV are to overall reduce the number of HIV infections. And then the other two goals really play into that. So increasing testing for HIV so people who are infected know it, and then increasing access to care and linkage to care so people who will stay in care because it's so important to suppress the virus in folks who are infected, that way they will not transmit it and then also reduce the HIV-related disparities and healthcare inequities that are, are very fraught in our system. And so those are our major goals. And the first key to those goals is testing and diagnosis. It's estimated that 91% of new infections in the United States are transmitted from people who do not know their diagnosis or are not in care. And there have been some really elegant studies um, looking at the role of having viral detection or de suppression in HIV patients. And the CDC issued a great press release in 2017 where they literally said undetectable is untransmittable. And this was based on three different large studies where they studied uh, discordant couples over time. And they found that in, in patients who had an undetectable viral load, there was no transmission for, through sexual contact. And so getting people into care and keeping their viral loads suppressed on appropriate therapy is extremely important for halting the transmission of this disease. And so the other part that's gonna help prevent spread of HIV is pre-exposure prophylaxis. So for patients out there who are, taking part in certain lifestyle behaviors, 
Um, it's recommended that if they are going to have risky behaviors that they take pre-exposure prophylaxis, which is readily available. There's great guidelines about how to best counsel people and, and get them on pre-exposure prophylaxis to prevent their uh, contracting HIV. And so HIV's changed a lot in the last 30 years. So uh, the medications, there's over five one pill once a day medications. They're very easily easy to tolerate, very low side effect profile. Um, people are living normal life expectancies. Over half of our HIV patients in clinic are over the age of 50, which is considered geriatric uh, for HIV patients. And we have to worry about the signs of premature aging and the symptoms of chronic inflammation. They'll get heart disease, cancer, um, and other complications of chronic inflammation in their system uh, at earlier ages. And so we do have to watch and, and try to screen them appropriately. And some of our biggest concerns for our HIV patients are, of course, keeping them on their antiretrovirals, helping them never miss a dose, encouraging them to uh, strategize ways to never miss a dose, but then also dealing with weight loss, tobacco cessation, healthy lifestyle, mental health concerns, substance abuse, and, and a lot of the basic things that a general internal medicine clinic would cover with their patients. And so HIV very, very quickly takes the back seat. It's, it's, once it's, the virus is controlled, we um, go back to just routine health maintenance and getting their vaccinations and their health maintenance going. And so um, I think HIV is a very rewarding field. Uh, it's certainly come a long way, even in my decade of practicing. And so um, it's, it's a, a very exciting field to be in. That's very, very nice, Stephanie. Nice overall view. Let me dig into that, uh, your uh, epidemiology data. I was surprised only 7% uh, were injection drug users because you get the impression, or we used to, that HIV patients, besides leading, leading, leading a dangerous sexual lifestyle, were probably engaged in uh, drug use or alcohol use. You didn't mention alcohol, and I'll sort of make it a two-pronged question. The IV drug use, the alcohol use, and the combination which I see, and we see in GI, which is the combination of hepatitis C uh, with HIV. Uh, do you want to give us a, your view on that and how the pros and cons of uh, your treatment package and uh, how you personalize that treatment? Uh, yeah, so that was a lot of questions bundled into one. I'll try to start at the top. So yeah. in different parts of the country, the epidemic is different. So in inner city Baltimore, the IV drug abuse is probably the leading cause of HIV transmission. Whereas certainly in the South where I practice, uh, it's homosexual and heterosexual sex and um, risk-taking sexual behaviors. Now, those risk-taking behaviors are often heavily influenced by intoxication uh, with a variety of substances or alcohol. And so uh, it is not uncommon for me to hear my patients um, donning a handful of pills with a collection of activities, uh, uppers, downers, hallucinogens, um, stimulants um, with a little Viagra on the side and, and then going out and partying and not being able to remember who they were with. And so um, it, is, it is challenging both on the drug front and on the uh, sexual activity front in certain situations in certain places. 
And so um, as far as hepatitis C, absolutely. The hepatitis C epidemic overlaps the HIV, uh, HIV epidemic quite a bit and they potentiate each other. So HIV patients with hepatitis C have a much more rapid progression to cirrhosis. And the cool thing about hepatitis C is we now have a armamentarium of drugs to treat it with and to cure it with. It's not like HIV where we treat it as a chronic disease and simply suppress it for the rest of their lives. Um, hepatitis C, uh, it can be as simple as an eight week course of therapy. And if they have the right genotype and the right viral load and the right comorbidities, and um, you can actually pronounce them cured and they graduate from ID clinic. And that is one of the most rewarding groups to treat, honestly, because it's, it's an infection we can cure. So uh, it, it is nice. Typically we'll get uh, HIV patient with both infections. We'll get their HIV under control. We'll treat their hepatitis C. Occasionally I get one who's got the trifecta. They also have TB in there. And so uh, you treat the HIV first, the hepatitis C second, and then you tackle the tuberculosis because the tuberculosis uh, prophylaxis, if it's only latent TB, is still a little liver toxic. So uh, you wanna get the hepatitis C out of the way. Now, as far as I can tell from, I don't treat patients that closely in the, in the liver clinic, but, um, the direct anti acting antivirals for HIV did not really worsen the hepatitis C liver disease. Now we do have a cure, but in general, the direct acting antivirals do not damage the hepatitis C patients very much as far as I can tell. Is that a fair statement? Uh, that's right. Uh, the direct acting antivirals uh, typically don't have many adverse effects at all. Um, you do want to watch for any flares of hepatitis B when you're treating hepatitis C, and certainly you want to run your drug-drug interactions, but there's certain hepatitis C therapies that interact pretty favorably with most of our HIV uh, antiretroviral regimens, and so um, it's, it's really, hepatitis C is, is very easy to treat. The, the biggest barriers, I would say, is our cost, and adherence. Now, in the HIV world, just saying, yes, let's get treated quickly. Let's um, be more transparent. Let's go out there. Can your patients afford treatment in general? What, what are the ranges of concern regarding the economics of treatment um, that patients for will HIV? face? For HIV? Yeah. Um, HIV therapy is by and large provided for most patients through government programs, uh, through the Ryan White clinics and the Ryan White grants. Um, certainly um, those with uh, VA or federal benefits get it through that system. There are private insurances that will pay for HIV medicines, though frequently the co-pays are so high that they can become prohibitive. And I have had a few patients who insurance companies like to change their drugs um, very much like they used to change a, um, a trade drug or a brand name drug to a generic drug. They'll change from between antiretroviral regimens that are not equal. And we have had to deal with that some. Um, but by and large, I would say the majority of HIV patients are requiring assistance um, through government programs and grants to avoid their uh, afford the medicines. And generally, these are these are these are accessible. Um, there have been times where there have been waiting lists, but I don't believe they are uh, there are currently much of a waiting list. 
So I'm surprised HIV didn't get a bit more press during this uh, racial discrimination uh, tensions that we've had over the last uh, six months, because I see that 42% African-American, 27% Hispanic, um, and probably the worst outcomes uh, of the patients who are dying uh, are probably mixed into that, that, that combination of uh, somewhat racially oriented uh, disease. Uh, does that get much press or is that getting much press in the world now about uh, who's sort of being less intensively managed, shall we say, in the world of racial discrimination? Well, there, there have long-term long been racial disparities and um, other bias in HIV work. I mean, the original bias was uh, the LGBTQ community uh, being discriminated against, or it was recommended as, as a gay disease. Um, and I think uh, now, especially in the South, it has transitioned into a more African-American with a mixture of both heterosexual and homosexual uh, populations. And um, you're right, there are definite racial disparities in our clinics. We, uh, we can see the preponderance of certain races. And so um, whether that is a problem of our messaging and not reaching those groups with a prevention method or message or education, or maybe the accessibility of the methods for prevention. We definitely need more uh, of that community, those communities to be on PrEP, to have PrEP available. Um, PrEP accessibility is a big barrier to utilization and then the cost. Uh, there is no Ryan White program for PrEP. And a lot of times healthcare insurance may cover it some, there may be co-pays or, and the cost can be prohibitive. And so uh, populations that are participating in behaviors at risk to spread HIV don't have good access to PrEP. And so there is a lot of social work uh, and, and social justice work to do to reach those populations and prevent them from contracting HIV. And in the GI world, uh, you know, we used to be chasing diarrhea everywhere, cryptosporidia, rule out everything uh, because of HIV patients. It seems like we're going on less of those expeditions. I don't go on many at all anymore. Is this because why the uh, CD4 counts are better or people aren't uh, are more aware of uh, so-called... Uh, you know, transmitted uh, GI infections, or why, why are we seeing less mysterious diarrhea? Well, I think it's a twofold answer. I think uh, we still have a few patients presenting with extremely low CD4 counts that have not been tested when they probably should have been tested years prior, uh, if they had been in healthcare years prior, which they may not have been. Uh, so I certainly, I'd, I've seen one patient this year with a mysterious diarrhea, we're still working up. But um, they're, they're not as common as they used to be. We used to have maybe one a month or more yeah. than that uh, yeah. in the past, certainly much more than that in the 80s and 90s. And then we also have new PCR technologies where you might have needed a small bowel biopsy to diagnose microsporidia, isosporidia, uh, those type of um, small bowel 
invasive uh, pathogens. We now have BioFire and other trade names, uh, GI pathogen panels, where we can sample for 20 different GI path pathogens based on their genetic signatures. And so mm -hmm. um, it's, it's revolutionized our workup for diarrhea. Yeah. Uh, do not need as quite as many invasive scopes. There still are cases we're going to need help with as far as getting biopsies and diagnosing uh, certain things, but we've certainly come a long way in our genetic ability to diagnose uh, obscure pathogens. Yeah, just as a ballpark figure, we're not going to hold this to you, to you to it, but if you get a new HIV patient, you know, what, what can you promise them as far as, G with antiviral, retrovirals, X, Y, and Z, I can guarantee you such um, a low viral load that you're basically going to be essentially living in symbiosis or pseudo-cured uh, of HIV. What, what sort of figure could you quote me at age 30, say, what's, you know, like Magic Johnson, he appears to be doing everything and he's normal. Well, well, how many people could achieve a, a Magic Johnson kind of lifestyle based on the current uh, retroviral world? Well, pretty much if a patient takes their pills every dose every day, and that is difficult, then they can expect a normal, normal life expectancy with a suppressed viral load. Our clinics have patients that are in that category that have a suppressed viral load, uh, the, the data is often greater than 80 to 90%, depending on what clinic you're dealing with. And then um, for the patients that are not suppressed, there's an identifiable reason. Uh, they're not getting their refills or they are, are not taking the pills and, and you pull a genotype and they're still wild type, which means they're not even getting enough pills in to cause mutations. Um, so, so you can pretty much tell who's taking their pills and who's not. If they start developing mutations, then they're only taking them three times a week, which is the worst way you can take them. Um, but pretty much if they're getting in every pill every day, they're not on any, uh, substance that make it difficult for them to take the pills. I think, uh, the leading substance that interferes with medication adherence in my clinic is crack cocaine. Um, but if they can stay off the substances and stay in a good mental health and take their pills every day, they are suppressed and they have a normal life expectancy. Yeah, we used to look for Kaposi sarcoma and try to check everything and do endoscopies and wonder why we couldn't find more. We don't talk much about Kaposi sarcoma anymore. Is that sort of like another one of those, you know, rarely identified lesions anymore? Or what does it, what does it correlate most with? Being untreated early in your career or what? Is CD4 count. So the lowest CD4 count they've ever had uh, impacts that. And if they've had it in the past, sometimes even treating the HIV alone can help them. Of course, you'd also give them the chemotherapy for the capsaicins, but a lot of them can clear a lot of it on their own if their immune system will come back. Um, and then if, if they have never bottomed out their immune system, capsaicins will, will not be an issue. And so it really is a what CD4 do they have when they present and how quickly can we get them on therapy? And the fact that therapies are so easy to tolerate and once we can get them on therapy and keep them on therapy, as long as their CD4s stay high, the capsaicins just should not happen. 
And what's your working level for the keeping the CD4? What what what's your working uh, level that you carry around? Oh being, gosh, well, being it, above it what really, level? Yeah, so it depends on on how low they ever went. If they got to be in a CD4 count less than ten, uh, you hope to get them back up to two hundred or above two hundred. There are some that have trouble reconstituting if they've really gotten down to that low nadir of of ten or less. But most patients, if they start antiretrovirals as soon as they're diagnosed, and you know the guideline is now we start everybody as soon as we can, sometimes even in the hospital when they're diagnosed, depending on what opportunistic infections may be going on. But if they get started early and they never depopulate less than 200 or 500, they can have a normal CD4 count the rest of their lives. And what's the best antiviral cocktail or, or drug that you use? Oh, gosh. Well, there's three major uh, one pill once a day regimens that are recommended in the guidelines. So um, and, and I, you know, they're their non-generic names are so long. Um, OK, that's all right. But there are there are two or three choices and they're both oh, they're all effective. Oh, very effective. So how do you choose one? Um, so you choose based on, um, believe it or not, the size of the pill. Uh, okay. One, of them, okay. one of them is a really tiny pill. One of them is a really big pill, but you can crush it. And so if I have a patient who says, I chew everything, I can't swallow a single pill ever in my life, okay. then you can crush that one. It's the biggest pill, but you can actually crush it. And as long as you get every grain of that thing down, you've got it. Um, and then there's one in the middle that um, you can just uh, they're really, it, it's, it's down to how much weight might they gain on it. There's one of them that might is probably our strongest medicine, but it also has some associated weight gain with it. And, yeah. you know, my young females really hate that and, um, they'll pick something else because this one might cause weight gain in not everybody, but enough people that were worried about it. Uh, there are, of course, if, if they're of reproductive age, if, certainly if they're female, there are certain ones that are more recommended if they're planning to get pregnant. And so uh, we would choose based on that planning. And then um, others, it, it can come down to something as simple as pill size or, or other mm -hmm. side effects that they're worried about. Well, Stephanie, uh, I've learned a lot. So I hope the other members of AFMR have learned a lot as well. And anyone else listening to our podcast and Anyone in turn who wants to in turn follow up, the podcast will be posted officially in a couple of days and um, we can all benefit from Stephanie's expertise and uh, enlightenment. Stephanie, I've really appreciated your time. Uh, thank you very much uh, for giving us um, this uh, wonderful update on HIV and uh, the fact that there's a, really a lot of good news um, and uh, you presented it. Uh, very, very methodically and very logically. Thank you very much again. And uh, our best wishes to you and your family for the, the season of Christmas and New Year. And um, let's hope for a better New Year. Yes, yes, let's hope. Thank you so much for having me. This was fun. Thank you.